You can open your Bibles tonight or navigate on your devices to Philippians chapter 1. One of the regular bits on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon is him reading his written out thank you notes. Thank you, emergency row on a plane, for making me lie every time the flight attendant asks me if I can function in case of an emergency. Thank you, the word moist, for being the worst word ever. Thank you, slow walking family ahead of me on the sidewalk. No, please, take your time and definitely spread out too so you form a barricade. Things like that. The Apostle Paul inserted thank you notes in his letters. With the exception of Galatians and 2 Corinthians, all of his letters begin with a mention of his thanksgiving for the saints. Paul was thankful for what God had already done for the believers, and he was thankful for what God promised to accomplish in them. Let's read just some of those so that we're saturated with the Scripture. It says in Romans 1.8, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. 1 Corinthians 1.4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1.5, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. Ephesians 1.15 and 16, therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. So you're welcome to text me, but then I'll call you out on it. How's that? Yeah. No, I can't say that. Uh, Colossians 1, 3 through 5. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. And then 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and 4, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Now, our text tonight is from his letter to the Philippians, where Paul states his thankfulness for their fellowship in the gospel. We're taking a look at some of the recorded prayers of Paul in the New Testament. It's hard to have a definite list because sometimes he's praying, whereas other times he's talking about how he's been praying or how he's going to pray. But believing we're led by the Spirit in the text that we're choosing, we're looking at his prayers and we're taking them in chronological order, not necessarily book order. And that takes us from the Thessalonian letters we've already looked at into the book of Philippians, his next letter. On his second missionary journey, Paul visited Philippi. Through his ministry there, several people trusted Christ as their savior. Some of those were Lydia and her family and the Philippian jailer and his family. Soon after Paul's visit, a local church was established in Philippi. And the church was one that often helped the apostle in different ways so this epistle was written to acknowledge their help as well as to be a help to them by giving them the word of God. Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, probably in Rome. The believers were naturally concerned. Nothing wrong with their concern. Uh, certainly if you hear that your pastor is in prison, please be concerned and bail me out. 
But uh, obviously there's nothing wrong with that. But they ought to have remembered that when Paul was in prison in their own city, remarkable things happened. It was in Philippi, in the Philippian jail, that Paul and Silas were in the stocks singing praises and praying at midnight, and the earthquake came, opened up all of the cell doors. It looked like the prisoners were going to escape, so much so that the jailer was going to kill himself, commit suicide, because that's what you did when you failed your post. And Paul came out, and, and he took a, a charge of the prison, and with authority, he told him not to do that. He ended up going over to his house, led his whole family to faith in Jesus Christ, Prisoners all went back in their cells. Paul went back in his cell, and they waited for the city officials to come the next morning. City officials had put him in jail uh, for, uh, I believe that was where he cast out the demon-possessed girl. And um, when they went to release him, thinking that they had taught him a lesson about who was really in charge, Paul said, hey, by the way, did I mention to you last night, I seem to have forgotten to tell you I'm a Roman citizen. And so they had looked at him, and he didn't look like a Roman citizen, and so they didn't ask him. But what they had done to him, and Silas was absolutely illegal, and it could have cost them their careers, maybe even their lives. And so Paul graciously uh, allowed that to stand, but it gave the church a footing in Philippi. Uh, and, and just from the point of view of just serving the Lord, I mean, this is a rabbit trail, but Paul, you know, he waits and waits and waits to, to go out on a mission, he keeps trying to go places, and the Holy Spirit won't let him, and then they call him to Macedonia, and he gets down to Philippi, and there's not even enough Jewish men there to form a synagogue, so he has to go down by the river where uh, he finds some uh, Lydia, the Jewish woman, and very few converts in Philippi, and then he gets thrown in jail. And yet, uh, he has a sense that it was all in God's timing, it was all in God's plan, that everything that happened to him was for the furtherance of the gospel, and, and that's something that the believer should have taken in mind. You know, sometimes it's, it's hard being a Christian, I think, sometimes in the area of, of showing and sharing your compassion and genuine concern one for another, while at the same time just being honest about what's going on. Hey, I'm, I, Paul, we're concerned you're in jail. We hope you're doing okay, but man, the last time you were in jail, it turned out great, and so what's going to happen this time? Who knows? Another time in a Roman imprisonment, he says that he was leading uh, the Praetorian Guard to faith in Jesus Christ, and the gospel was in the household of Caesar as a result of Paul sharing the gospel while he was in prison. And so when you heard that Paul the Apostle was in prison, you're pretty excited for it because this was some really prime ministry. That His idea of prison ministry was to be a prisoner. And, and uh, of course, you know, he had done nothing wrong. It was all for the sake of the gospel. But so a lot of times, you know, when I hear what's going on in the life of a Christian, and you too, we, we want to have a compassion, weeping with those who weep. Uh, but at the same time, it is for the furtherance of the gospel. I read a story this morning, as a matter of fact, about Dr. Alan Redpath. I don't know how many of you are familiar with his writings. He's a former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. And um, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting him once and uh, attending a retreat where he taught up at Calvary Chapel at Twin Peaks at the conference center there. And um, the story is told of him. At one point in his ministry in Moody, he had a severe stroke that debilitated him for some time, and he was angry with God and depressed. And he the way he tells the story 
God finally revealed to him that he had to bring him to that point to show him what was still in his heart, the anger and the depression and the, the uh, bitterness really towards God. And, you know, uh, uh, without that stroke, he thought he was doing great as a spiritual man, but uh, he, he couldn't accept it as a gift from God until he finally wrestled with God through it and stuff. And so we need to be very careful um, in our choice of words, obviously. You don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or say something flippantly. I think sometimes Christians don't listen carefully enough to each other's pain, and they think, oh, well, here's what you do about that, or you don't think, you don't really put yourself in the situation. I know a lot of times people have told me after they've gotten into a situation where they've suffered uh, that they had never really had compassion on people who suffered in that way or who had long-term illnesses or whatever it might be. And so, so we want to be careful not to be flippant and not just to overlook the suffering, but there's a balance there. And so seriously, when Paul was in prison, it all turned out great for him, uh, you know, in, in terms of how the Lord used that ministry. So they were concerned for him, but he was a prisoner not of Rome, never of Rome. He was a prisoner of Jesus Christ. And he had resolved in his heart that whatever he encountered in his life, it was for the furtherance of the gospel. If anybody had a one-track mind, it was the Apostle Paul. Everything was about sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. So prison also gave Paul opportunity to write some of his letters. Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians and Philemon are prison epistles. And it gave him some extended prayer time, uh, time uh, by himself there so that he could just spend in prayer. So let's see what he was praying for regarding the Philippians in chapter 1, beginning in verses, uh, or looking at verses 3 through 6, rather. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. It's hard to say exactly what he was praying for here. It doesn't read like a prayer list so much so as we want to glean something we haven't yet mentioned in this series, and that is what we might call the tone of his praying. From one quick reading of these verses, we can see Paul was thankful, he was joyful, and he was confident when he prayed for them. And those are characteristics of at least his prayers for the Philippians. So keep that in mind as we dig in a little deeper, beginning again with verse 3. He says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, you're probably too young to remember Bob Hope. Who remembers Bob Hope? Oh, you're older than I thought. <laughs> I'll ask this anyway. What was his signature song? Anybody remember Bob Hope's signature song? Thanks for the memory. Actually, it's, it's memory. I always say memories. And, uh, but if you go and look it up, it's thanks for the memory. And it, thanks for the memory. And then it goes on. There's like a million lyrics to it. Different people have covered it. I couldn't find the one that, well, I didn't want to listen to the one from the 30s on YouTube. So that's as much of the song as you get. But Paul thanked God for the memories that he had of the Philippians. They loved him, and they put that love in action, caring for him and sending him support. And so when he thought about the church at Philippi, he had lots of tender memories about it. And he didn't merely receive a one-time gift from the Philippian believers. He received gifts from them on a number of occasions. Even when he was in other cities, the Philippians continued to send material support. They're one of the few churches that did. And it wasn't the money that made the good memories, but it was the thought that was behind it. Paul 
you know, supported himself in the ministry. He worked with his hands. It was one of those situations where he couldn't win for losing because he didn't want to come across as ripping people off by saying, hey, I'm here, I'm Paul the Apostle. If you donate to my cause, then I can spend full time in the ministry. So he'd get a job working as a tent maker, and working with fabric and, and things like that. Uh, and then churches like Corinth would say, oh, what kind of an apostle is that guy if he has to get a job and isn't supported? And so, uh, you know, you just sometimes have to go with your gut and Paul did, and he says, I'm just going to support myself, and if people can't see uh, that I'm doing it for a spiritual motive, I, there's nothing I can do about that. So it wasn't the money that, that made the Philippian church so endearing to him, but the thought that was behind it, because they got it. They understood that he was about the Lord's business, doing the work of the Lord, and they wanted to be a part of that. Now, here's something to ponder, a question, actually. Are you remembered by others with thankfulness on account of your being a help to them? What, what kind of memories do people have of you uh, or would they have of you? And uh, only you can answer that. I'm not saying it to bust anybody out, but uh, Paul thought back on, his, uh, on the folks at Philippi and he had fond memories and hopefully people would have fond memories of us as well. Paul referred to God as my God. It's a term of endearment and intimacy. Of course, God was the God of the Philippian believers just as much as he was Paul's. Uh, but they and we uh, are reminded in his use of the word my to have an intimate, personal, growing relationship with the living Savior. And this is one reason why I get frustrated first and then angry whenever folks erect barriers to our worship of God and then act as though it makes them feel closer to God. Uh, it's been fashionable um, in Christian circles the last few years, at least the last decade, for Christians to gravitate back towards what we would call more liturgical worship. Liturgy just means order of service. It's a big word people use that means order of service. And so like on Sunday morning, we have an order of service. The worship team comes out. Then I come up and do a prophecy update. Then we have the announcements. Then we meet and greet. Then we have the study. Then we have our reflection time. That's our liturgy. But we don't call it that. We, just, we don't call it anything. We just do it. But uh, some of these Christians are getting back into a more ancient liturgy. Uh, it's, it's a more reverent, wearing robes and uh, rituals and following a church calendar and doing all of these different things. And, and because it's new, because it's different, uh, it, it somehow feels more spiritual. I'll tell you why it feels more spiritual, because it's religious. It's religious trappings that you're adding to the gospel that make you feel like you're doing something, like you're closer to God. But every time you add something, like every robe you add, every rite, every ritual, uh, every rote prayer that you have to read, every, every time you have to follow something that's written down, you're taking a step back away from intimacy, you're sewing up the veil again. And you're making a veil uh, between you and God that somehow makes you feel more spiritual but actually destroys intimacy. And so just be on your guard as a Christian. Don't, don't, don't buy into these things that make distance between you and God and then purport to make you feel more spiritual. Uh, maybe we're too casual, I don't think so. Uh, we just worship God in spirit and in truth the way that uh, he ought to be worshipped. Uh, I don't think anything, I don't think being casual has anything to do with being irreverent. 
any more than being super reverent uh, means that you're more spiritual. You know, these people who change their voice in the pulpit. They have a pulpit voice. Oh, God. You know, those kinds of things. Do you feel would you feel closer to God if I preached like that? No, of course not. Uh, you, well, you wouldn't come if I preached like that. But anyway, anyway, so be careful of that. There's a lot, there's a movement towards, uh, they want to call it the early church, but it's really the ancient church. And, and it's a liturgical movement that separates you from God. The tone of Paul's prayers was thankfulness. Wherever God is at work in people, we have cause for thanksgiving. It's no easy thing for a hard heart to be penetrated by grace and for a person's freed will to choose the Lord. I mean, if somebody tells me they're a Christian, I'm thankful. Uh, I mean, Paul says God's going to complete the work that he started, and, and that, that sometimes becomes an issue because people are all over the map. All of us are in terms of our maturity, and we give each other fits. But I'm thankful for anybody who's born again because there was a struggle there, a spiritual struggle for that person's heart. And somehow the gospel got to them. Some friend or family member uh, shared Christ with them. Or someone donated to a ministry that put something on television or uh, promoted a tract or sent a mailer or, or sent somebody out witnessing. And they somehow encountered the living God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they came to know the Lord. And I can be thankful for that. And Paul was super thankful. So then in verse 4, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. The words prayer and request mean the same thing, and they're translated from the same word. Paul was making specific requests for them. He undoubtedly prayed for them as a church, but he also prayed for all of their requests as individuals. And so he um, did his level best to think of each person as God would bring that person to his heart and he would pray specifically for them. Uh, and, um, you know, if you ever get stuck in a prayer meeting and you don't know how to pray, just start thinking of people that you know and start praying for them. I mean, everybody knows a few people, right? And, and they all need something. Uh, they need more of Jesus. And so there's always someone to pray for. You know, in the age of smartphones... Folks are split over just how rude it is to be noodling on your device while you're talking to someone. Uh, and, and there are two schools of thought on this. I think most people feel like it's rude. In fact, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian, has a whole routine that he's built around this uh, where he uh, just, you know, is playing with his phone while somebody's talking to him. Has that has ever happened to anybody? If you've ever talked to me, it's happened to you. So, but... Uh, because uh, I'm in the camp where I think uh, people can multitask, unless I'm in a really serious conversation. I mean, if you want to come by and say, hey, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing something on my phone. That's how I'm doing. Uh, you know, but uh, I understand. You know, so I don't, I don't think it's rude. And when people are on their phone, uh, I mean, I've had people when I'm in a counseling session with them, the marriage counseling, their phone rings. I say, hey, answer your phone. Go ahead. No, I'll let it ring. I go, okay, whatever, you know. But... You know, it's, it's, a, it's the world we live in. But here's something to think about. If you're a believer, you can do something like that, but without it being observable. You can silently, secretly be praying for someone while they're talking to you. And I recommend you try this. I'm sure you've all done it without thinking about it. I do it anytime I'm in a counseling situation since I want to say what God wants them to hear. 
And so people are talking, and you know, have you ever, you ever seen a movie representing this where people are talking and then they're, and your mind is just going and you don't even know? Because you know, people are talking and I'm like, Lord, what am I gonna say? What do you want me to say? What's the real issue here? That kind of thing. The only thing I had to learn early on is to not move my lips while I was doing that. So if you're gonna pray for somebody while they're talking to you, do it in a ventriloquist style. Ah, oh, Lord, you know, or just, actually you're just praying in your heart, but you can, I mean, do you ever think about that? You can be praying for somebody, and I would recommend, take a, as a spiritual discipline one night or one Sunday morning, say, look, everybody I encounter, I'm gonna pray for them without their knowing about it while, while I'm talking with them. And you can do it because you're, you know, God's given us these, and it's a really neat way of praying for people. And it may be that the Lord would reveal something to you about what you should be talking to that individual about. You know, I went through a phase when in what we call counseling, which is really just discipleship. It's really just pointing a person towards Jesus. They're on the wrong track or they need some advice to get back into the Bible and, and the Word of God. And I used to collect these books where they, and you probably have them. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. These books where they're alphabetized and they have like issues that people have, attitude problems or anger issues or whatever, and, and you flip through it and you find the scripture that, you know, that, you, you know. And so you, I guess you sit there in your counseling appointment, and say, hang on for a second. Would you say your problem is anger or bitterness? Because I, I need to give you the right scripture, you know. And over the years, I've learned to just pray because you don't know what that person's problem is. They don't know what their problem is. And you could spend years talking to each other and not get to the bottom of it, or you could just ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to say? And, and Gino's teaching uh, out of John on Wednesday mornings, and he's in John chapter three with Jesus and Nicodemus. And one of our favorite passages where Nicodemus comes and he starts a conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, I have something to say to you. You need to get saved. What? Where did that come from? I thought we were having a theological discussion and Jesus and if you follow Jesus, he's always changing the subject because he knew men's hearts. He knew what men and women needed to hear. And you know what? So do you when you listen to the Holy Spirit. You might not even know it. So pray for, try, I mean, it sounds funny, but I'm serious about this. If you don't already do this, pray for people while they're talking to you and when you encounter them and see how it enhances your fellowship. Paul tells us he made his request for them with joy. To have joy when making a request, you must really believe that God will do what is best for that person, regardless of your personal wishes. Whatever his answer, yes, no, or wait, you believe all things work together for the good for those who love the Lord. And so I pray for somebody, and I have joy, which is different than happiness. Joy is, is a, a settled attitude. Um, of trust in God, and regardless whether my prayers are answered yes, no, or wait, I believe that God is at work in that person's heart, and I maintain my attitude. Verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Fellowship isn't just friendship on a deeper level because we happen to be believers. Don't get me wrong, friendships are great, and friendships with believers ought to be profound uh, and, and, you know, uh, as Michael W. Smith would say, a friend's a friend forever if the Lord's the Lord of them. But our fellowship is in the gospel. It is based on the common salvation we share and in our participating in the fellowship of the gathered saints and in our desire to work together 
to see that the gospel is shared. And so, um, you know, my understanding of the first century church, the, the model church, we would say, because it was the first church, is that people got saved and they were radical. They wanted to share that faith with others and they just naturally gathered together with other people who were like them because you, you, you want to encourage each other, tell each other stories, hear about the same Lord, you get taught and stuff like that. So, you know, you don't have to go to church. You want to go to church. You want to be with other believers and have fellowship in the gospel and because you all have this new attitude about what's ultimately important. I need to remind myself that I don't need to be on a missions trip in order to be on a missions trip. My whole life is a mission trip to fulfill the Great Commission. And so let's make sure our fellowship is around the Lord. And if we do, we won't be able to keep from sharing him with each other and with others. And then verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. The day of Jesus Christ in this context is the day you die or you're raptured. In those moments, you'll be completed, you'll be finished, you'll be fit for eternity. Uh, Whatever progress God has made in you and transforming you into the image of his son, when you die and you're absent from your body and present with the Lord, when you get your resurrection body, when we're raptured, you're going to be complete. There's no more work to be done. You'll be perfect as God intended you to be. And uh, Paul was confident because God was the one who's responsible ultimately for transforming each of us into the image of his son. We therefore pray with confidence knowing that everything else God said he'd accomplish will happen. Our prayers obviously ought to take into consideration that God is working in the believer to transform him or her. Thus, it isn't always appropriate, as I suggested earlier, for the trial to end because God can use it. Again, we have to be very careful how we pray for people. I pray for folks to be healed, believing God can do it, but I am excited to see him at work if he withholds his healing. And so keep praying for if people are sick or afflicted or going through hard times, keep praying that God would deliver them from those. But if he doesn't, then it's not a lack of power or ability. He must deem that they must need go through that. Paul the Apostle once said, I need to learn to be abounding and I need to learn to be abased. And if somebody is not being relieved of their trial, then it doesn't do them any good for me to be bummed out with them, but I need to encourage them that God's grace is sufficient for them and um, that he will come alongside them and strengthen them until such time he does deliver them either on the earth or in eternity. I don't know how much suffering we might need to endure prior to the rapture, but I know that my future is secure and the future of the earth is already written out. I'm confident Jesus will return during Armageddon to save the world from destruction because he said he would. And so I ought to be confident that he's with me in my battles because he is. And so when all the armies of the world are gathered in the valley of Megiddo and it's like crisis time and the world is facing total annihilation and destruction, everybody's got their hands on the nuclear button. Pew, 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 pew. And it's all going to go down. Jesus comes back and he solves all that inaugurates his kingdom. So I think I can count on him for the little struggles that I have in my life, the things that I think are battles against enemies. I'm confident that the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of the Lord when he comes to rule and reign. I'm confident 
in so many things. We're a supremely confident people. We ought to pray confidently, tempered by God's will. Confidence in prayer doesn't mean I demand anything from God. It means I know I'm being heard because His is a throne of grace and mercy that I approach in my time of need. And um, whatever His answer is, I will have the grace to deal with it. And we ought to have a general overruling confidence that God is at work always in every circumstance. And so these words, thankful, joyful, confident. Am I? Are you? One way to know is to listen to your prayers to their tone. When you pray, is it thankful? Is it joyful? Is there a confidence that the Lord is going to act? Uh, if not, adjust the way you pray because we pray to a mighty God. Amen?